Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, before you put your Bible away, turn to Matthew chapter uh, 24, Matthew 24, and just put your finger on that. We're going to come back to that here in a few minutes. Matthew chapter 24, if you're using the Bible on your table, you will find that on page 985, 985. Now... Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in that particular passage we read, refers to the day. Now, in Scripture, whenever you read about the day or the day of the Lord, it's always with a special emphasis, and it always means basically the same thing. It's the day of culmination or the day of fulfillment. It's, it's the day when the Lord completes something only the Lord can do. And so in Scripture, the day of the Lord pretty much universally refers to the last day, the day of judgment, the day that God settles everything once and for all. It's a day that many of us would say we look forward to, but if we're honest, it's a day that should also frighten us a little bit because the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ, which is essentially what we mean when we say the day of the Lord as Christians, is a day when God's judgment will result in wrath for some and deliverance for others. So with that in mind, Let's think about this for just a moment because it's the first Sunday in Advent. Has anybody wished you a Happy New Year yet? What? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Happy New Year because it's the first Sunday of the Christian year. Advent, the first Sunday in Advent is the beginning of the Christian year according to the Christian calendar. So how many of you weren't paying attention last Sunday when I explained the church calendar? Just kidding. Now, you will recognize that the... Are you two laughing at me? Nah, these characters, I tell you. So, so anyway, no, I, the, the church calendar is, is a uh, um, schedule of, of the major events in, in the church's story. That is the story of God's relationship with humanity. And it forms this calendar of the year. And it always starts with the anticipation of Christ's return. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. But that's because the early Christians were more focused on where Christ was going to come next and how Christ was going to work the rest of the plan 
than they were on the previous. You know, if you get right down to it, most Christians spend more time talking about the historical Jesus than they do the living Christ who will return again. That's a hard thing for us to accept, but it's a vital thing for us to accept. Early Christians had no mistake in their minds about that. They understood that Jesus ascended to heaven and that the angels who were present told them he would return in the same way that he left and he would come in glory. And so we look forward to that day of the Lord. But that day of the Lord also means that it will be the day when everything Jesus said about himself and his times would be fulfilled. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you are outside of God's grace, it's going to be a terrible time. Isaiah chapter 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So God's wrath is serious business. It's serious business. And when God executes God's wrath, anyone who hasn't been forgiven or excused or otherwise been made right in their relationship with God is going to suffer the consequences of God's wrath. Now, I've never been much of a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but at some point, every honest preacher has to acknowledge the fact that there are consequences for disbelief. Every honest Christian has to acknowledge that they have friends, loved ones, co-workers, people that they circulate with in their world who are going to suffer God's wrath because they did not accept Christ's grace. This is a reality that we have to acknowledge, even if it doesn't feel good. Zephaniah says the great day of the Lord is near and it's hastening, you know, it's like it's picking up speed. He says, he says it's close and it's getting close faster. And he also says, uh, Joel also says that it's a day when the trumpet will blast. It'll be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In other words, when the day of the Lord comes, the, the world will be in darkness both literally and figuratively. It means that the world, because of God's wrath, is going to experience literal darkness. And it also means that the Lord, the Lord, I mean the world, the people of the world will be living in darkness. That's why the Apostle Paul makes that reference to living as though it's daylight versus living as though it's night. Can we be really specific and get to the point? In the darkness, we feel like we can get away with all sorts of things, don't we? We figure nobody can see us. We, we figure in the darkness that anything goes. You know, it's why people like the nightlife. Because at night, 
You can creep around in the alleys, in the dark places, and you can cavort with whomever you wish. You can engage in whatever habits and hobbies you wish and be less noticed. You don't do the same things in broad daylight. This reference to light and darkness that's all over Scripture, especially when it refers to the day of the Lord, is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It means that sin is something that leads to darkness and that God's grace leads to glory and light. When I was in Israel recently, um, I was walking in a cave called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It was actually a tunnel, a water tunnel. And um, I was walking with, with uh, Emily Seitz, and we were, we were moving through this long, long, long tunnel in total darkness. We could just feel the water running over our feet and our ankles, sometimes as high as our knees. And we were using the lights on our cell phones to see our way. And I thought, you know, if we turn off the light, we're in pitch black. So we did. And I was right. There's no light coming into this tunnel. All you have is total darkness and the sound of the water and the movement of the water over your feet telling you which direction it's flowing. And apart from that, all you could do is feel your way along and hope that eventually you come into the light. There are a lot of people living their lives that way. A lot of people living in the dark and feeling their way along, hoping that they'll come into the light just when they need it most. The problem with living that way is, is you could just as easily fall into a hole. You could just as easily go deeper into the darkness and never escape. You need light, especially when you're feeling your way along in the dark. I think one of the reasons that we have so much uh, love for light, like the light of the Advent candle and the Christmas lights we put on our houses and our, our trees and our church and all these other things, we, we need light in the darkness, in the long, cold winters. You know, a lot of our Christmas traditions are Northern Hemisphere traditions. They're traditions that formed in Europe and, and North America. And since our days are long or, or nights are long and dark and cold this time, of the year when we celebrate Advent, we are especially fond of the light that we generate in honor of the season. But it really says an awful lot about the fear of darkness that we have. It's a justifiable fear. We bring light into the darkness because it comforts us, because it makes us feel better. It gives us hope. And Advent is like that. As we light the Advent candles, we will continuously add to them until at some point all five of those candles will be lit and they'll generate quite a bit of light, which is a reminder to us that the light of Christ has come and that Christ will return at a time when the world is immersed in darkness. What will the darkness look like? It'll look figuratively a lot like it already does. People will be doing all of the things that Paul associated with the nightlife, but they'll be doing it in broad daylight. And that's because even though we can see, they cannot. Figuratively speaking, we know a lot of people who are flailing around in the darkness doing things that you would do in darkness and not realizing that they're walking in the light. 
Now, we as Christians are walking in the light, but some of us are asleep as though it's nighttime and we're not living in the light. So we're not doing anything particularly wrong, but we're not really doing anything right either. We're just asleep in the light. The Apostle Paul says that when the day of the Lord comes, it will be those who are awake who are looking for his return that will see it first. Jesus said that it would be like brides who are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. They've got their bags packed. They've got their lamps trimmed. They're ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And they listen for the sound of his voice as he comes. This is what it means to be Advent people. Now, for those of us who have accepted Christ's gift of salvation, who have stopped rejecting God and accepted the relationship with God that Christ makes possible, for those of us in this condition of grace, the day of the Lord is nothing to fear. It is the day of our salvation. It's the day when what Christ has begun in us is completed in us. It's a day when our citizenship in heaven turns into a new resurrected existence. The Apostle Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross, And unfortunately, their destruction is certain. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What Paul is saying is that on that day of the Lord, we will be resurrected. I'll explain more in a minute, but let's just hear what he says plainly. In the power of Jesus, this happens. Jesus, by his own authority, ordered his resurrection from death. We tend to forget about that at Easter time, but he rose from the dead because he ordered it so. It's not the same as when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised himself. He chose that moment to be resurrected. And resurrection is not the same as being brought back to life after having been dead. Resurrection is a new form. And Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is the firstborn of the resurrected dead. Paul says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. Jesus' resurrection was the first, but certainly not the last. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is is that everyone who has entered into that relationship with him, it's a foregone conclusion that they will join him in the family of resurrected beings. And that is what happens on the day of the Lord. What does that mean? 
It means that, as Paul says, the body that was sown as perishable is raised imperishable. The body that is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. The body that is sown in weakness is raised in power. The body that is natural becomes spiritual. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, meaning that he is anticipating a time at the day of the Lord when those who are dead will be raised and those who are living will be transformed instantaneously into an eternal nature. Now, if you want to know what that's going to be like on the day of the Lord, it's exciting because we can look to Jesus as the example after Jesus' resurrection. He was physical in every sense. They could touch him. He ate with them. He was as real as ever before, and yet he had certain qualities that he lacked before the resurrection. For one thing, he seems to have been able to pass through walls. For another thing, he seems to be able to transport himself to any place and time that he chose. He was seen by hundreds immediately after his resurrection. He was in Galilee one minute, and he was in Jerusalem the next. So all of this tells me that on the day of the Lord, if we have been saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, we've got something exciting to look forward to. However, because of the love of Christ in us, we have a certain anxiety about the day of the Lord because we know that there will be those, even people we love dearly, who will not experience resurrection, but will experience God's wrath. And this, I hope, troubles you deeply. This is the source of a Aramaic saying that was very popular among the early church Christians, and I like to use it quite a bit myself. It's a word called Maranatha. Maranatha, this Aramaic word, means come and judge quickly, Lord, but also wait just another second because this person is almost ready to give their life to you. It's hard to explain it in simple terms, but it's a word that says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but hold off just a second. I think we got one more who's ready to get saved, to go join the family, you know. And so there's this sense of urgency about the person who has not accepted Christ, even as there's a sense of urgency about getting Christ here as quickly as possible to end the power of sin and death once and for all. Maranatha. And so this is the cry of the believer. Because we look forward to the day of resurrection. We look forward to the great day of the Lord when we will no longer live in perishable bodies and suffer the consequences of sin's ever-present nature on earth. But at the same time, we look forward to the day of the Lord with fear because we know that there will be many who will suffer God's wrath. And we don't want that for them. I hope. Sometimes it gets tempting to think about people receiving their just desserts, but I'd like to point out to you that whenever I start thinking that you ought to get what you deserve, it causes me to stop and think about what I deserve, and that makes me stop that line of thinking altogether. Best not to pray that you get what you got coming because I just might get what I've got coming. 
Better yet, let us live in the grace of God and understand that that grace is for everyone. And let us pray that those who have not accepted that grace will see it soon. Here's the problem. They live in darkness. You can't show them what they can't see. But if they begin to reach out and you take them by the hand, you can gently lead them toward the light. See, when we were walking in that tunnel in Israel the couple of weeks ago, the one thing that Emily and I both knew for sure was that it did have an end and it was about 700 meters ahead of us because we read a sign that told us that. And we were fairly confident that the sign was truthful and trustworthy. Everything I've been telling you about today comes from Scripture and Scripture is our sign that is trustworthy and true. And it tells us that if we will walk toward the light, we will come into the light. The light of glory of Christ, the truth that saves. And what we've got to be willing to do if we've accepted Christ is walk with others who have not yet accepted Christ. What is there to accept? It's really simple. Understanding that there's nothing about you that can make you right with God. And there's no hope for you if you're not right with God. Accepting that if you surrender all of the desires of your flesh and your need to be the most important thing in your universe to Christ and let him be the king of your world and all of creation, then you are forgiven. Simply by saying, Lord, I'm sorry I've rejected you all this time, but now I accept you. And not only do I accept you, but I accept your authority in my life. Then you're on the road to redemption. Then the light starts to flicker and get brighter. And as time passes, the Holy Spirit begins to bring about changes in you that you didn't think were possible. And those same changes lead you to becoming a source of light for others. Are you acting as a source of light? Are you representing the one who will save you in the day of wrath? Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. Now you're probably thinking, when is this sermon going to be over? You're probably thinking, when is all this stuff going to happen? You're probably familiar with the concepts, but have you really given any consideration to the possibility that it's closer than you think? Read Matthew chapter 24 with me on page 985. Here is a case where Jesus explains it himself. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, a point, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It was beautiful, spectacular, incredible construction. And Jesus said, you see all this, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. By the way, I was just there recently. There's nothing left. There's rocks, stones, bits and pieces. 
but it's gone. The temple that they admired isn't there. You can't even tell for sure where it was. Guess Jesus was right. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, if I were doing a sermon about eschatology, that's the study of end times events, we'd have another hour and a half to go at least. Rest assured, I'm not doing an eschatological examination of the scripture at this time. What I am telling you is Jesus himself says, no matter how bad it looks, it's not time yet. No matter how bad you think it is, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He tells you that it's actually at the time when the whole world has heard the gospel that the end will come. All these things he's described, we've witnessed if we're students of history, if we're students of our own world in this present age. But he says it's when the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world that this time will come. Has anyone given any consideration to the fact that the world has never been more connected than it is right now? That you can hear about things that are happening right now on other places? Do you know that when I was in Israel, 7,000 miles away, I was talking live face-to-face with my daughter here in Jasper? in real time on my phone. (laughs) Isn't that remarkable? Think about that for a second. What are the times we're living in? Times when the Word of God could reach every place on earth. I want to end by telling you a little something I learned because I'm the father of five. And I've been through a childbirth with my wife a few times. Now, she did the hard part. But here are some things that I observed. I noticed, first of all, that when it's time for a baby to be born, there's just nothing you can do about it. That baby's coming. And I realized that that process really starts almost imperceptibly nine months earlier when... The mother is experiencing subtle changes and not so subtle physical and mental changes she's probably the only one aware of at the time. But then there comes another period where it's obvious to everyone that a baby's coming. 
And it is at this time when the mother's body and mind begin to accelerate considerably in order to get ready for this incredible, incredible physical undertaking as well as everything that will result from it. And then there comes a time in that process when the mother groans for this baby to come. In fact, everybody around her does too. Because you feel sorry for her. She's miserable. This baby needs to be born. And then birth begins. And sometimes it's a long, painful process that takes hours. Other times it goes very quickly and it's relatively painless, but no one can know for sure until it begins how that's going to go. But the amazing thing is, is that as soon as the baby's born, mother almost immediately feels better. And as soon as you put the baby in her arms, it's all forgotten. It's kind of amazing. Well, this is what Jesus has used to describe what is coming in the story of the church. That is the relationship between God and God's people, Christ's people. It started out with a lot of subtle things that were not particularly perceptible outside. It turned to a point, my wife always said the second trimester was the, was the part where you coast. You know, some of you ladies could disagree with that because you know and I don't. But, but she always said that part was fairly nice. You felt pretty good. It wasn't too much of a burden. But then you get that third trimester and boy, it just starts getting harder and harder and harder all the way until baby comes. And I feel like that the church, I feel like the world of God's creation is in the third trimester right now. I really do. And I think if you look around, you can see it too. And this is where it is so obvious that something is about to bust loose. It is so obvious as the world is groaning with the birth pains, as the church is groaning with the birth pains. It's so clear that at any time, the day of the Lord is going to come. Let us pray. Father, take your word now and burn it upon the hearts of your people. Take the truth, only the truth, and let that remain with them. Whatever faulty logic or foolish words have come out of my mouth, simply erase it from their memories and then deal with me as you will. Lord, the main thing we pray is that those who don't know you will come to know you. Those who are not ready, who are not watching, who have not trimmed their candles and prepared themselves for the coming of the bridegroom might get ready. Because we do pray, Lord, as all the Christians of old have prayed, Maranatha, come quickly, but help us to save one more before you get here. Amen.